In this time that uh, that we've uh, had to make a lot of changes in the way that we communicate, not just with people, but uh, most importantly with the body of Christ and uh, and with the Lord Himself. I was considering a few questions today based on a text that I had received from a good friend of mine that was wondering what I thought about all that was going on and if this was really a great judgment of God. And I, and I told him that there are, there are some elements of judgment involved in what is going on in the world today with this COVID-19 But I also believe that it was and is something that God is allowing to happen for the express purpose of awakening awakening the church. And in doing so, bringing the church to reconsider, and that being, of course, every individual, every member of the body of Christ, to reconsider our priorities. When we were dealing with things in the norm, uh, our priorities may have been quite different. And now as we wrestle with this whole issue of of social distancing and uh, uh, wearing masks or gloves and whether you should or not, the whole issue of what do we need to do to to slow down this 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 virus it 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 really has to some degree brought us to a place where we have have have, have had to deal with our priorities as believers in Jesus Christ the things that were at one time most important to us outside of our relationship and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the church uh, has probably drastically changed in each one of us in some way. What we're dealing with tonight in the book of Ecclesiastes is coming to grips with the issue that life is a vapor. Life as, as we know it is not going to be as we may have considered or once considered uh, with an extension of, of, of life uh, to do the things that we ourselves have always felt or wanted to do. And this is more than likely one of the reasons why we're dealing with the book of Ecclesiastes during this time frame. Solomon, who in this particular book calls himself the preacher, has made it clear that there is a life or existence under the sun that is quite different than what God intends for his creation to do and to live by. So after our introduction last time in verses 1 and 2, Solomon begins really with with the meat of, of this whole book by asking the question, what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits." 
All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Solomon, the son of David and king of Israel, began the heart and the substance of the book of Ecclesiastes with the words in verse 2, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's, that's as if to say, worthless, 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 all is worthless. Futility of futilities, all is futile. I mean, this would be the theme of the whole of Ecclesiastes in that he used this word vanity 38 times as he wrote about life under the sun. Last time I, I defined the word vanity as meaning a thing insufficient and worthless, emptiness, futility, and something that like a vapor or bubble vanishes away quickly and leaves nothing behind. Add to the fact that Solomon's use of the phrase under the sun gives us throughout this whole letter, which, by the way, that phrase mentioned, is mentioned about 20 if I'm not mistaken, about 27 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. But that phrase, under the sun, gives us the human perspective or, or human point of view. It's seeing things from that human perspective. And so from that human point of view, under the sun, life does seem to appear futile and empty. And with that mindset, it would be easy for us to get pessimistic and gloomy. The Jewish author Shalom Aleichem once described life as, listen to this, he described life as, and I quote, a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. That's quite an interesting picture about what life is like. So I think we kind of get the picture of the futility of life under the sun. A San Francisco Chronicle article of a few years ago revealed that, that businessmen considered their lives as empty. A study of 4,126 male business executives revealed widespread dissatisfaction with the corporate experience. 48% of all middle managers said that despite years spent striving to achieve their uh, professional goals, their lives seemed empty and meaningless. Interesting words that they used. 68% of senior executives said that they had neglected their family lives to pursue professional goals and half said they would spend less time working and more time with their wives and children if they could start all over again. And so the question that, that men are asking today, that all men are asking today, is what am I doing all of this for? What am I doing all this for? Before, the payoff was security and long-term employment. But corporations don't return loyalty as they used to. And men today are saying that uh, they don't see the investment as being, well, being worth it. People in all walks of life are discovering that living in this world, no matter how much money is made and spent, is filled with vanity, futility, and frustration. When you, when you stop and think about it, you may wonder, why do we want to return to that normal? Because that was was normal a few months ago. But they're asking the same question that King Solomon pondered over in his, uh, in his observation of his own life. When it was lived outside of the purpose and will of God. As it was lived under the sun. And again, we go back to a question we asked last time. Is life really worth living? In a certain sense, he takes us back to the fall of man, when man made a conscious choice to become self-centered 
and self-guided rather than God-centered and God-guided. It was then that the whole of creation was subjected to this futility, but not without hope, as we read last week in Romans 8, 20, verses 20 and 21, where Paul said, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who, has subject, uh, who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, what's interesting about that statement, before we go on, is the use of the word vanity by Paul. And when you consider Paul's use of the word vanity as well as Solomon's use of the word vanity, there there really is a a double uh, uh, understanding, a double or a dual, if you will, definition. Vanity is indeed, as used by Solomon and Paul, uh, something that means hopelessness and, and, and emptiness and worthlessness. But consider that vanity and the word vain as well, which also means hopeless. If you do something in vain, you're doing something that's hopeless. But also consider how the other meaning, the, the other part of that word is used. Vanity and vain is used for so someone or, or something that is, is so focused and proud of its appearance or of its accomplishments. That's vanity as well. In fact, ladies, you, you know that uh, there's a little table that you may have in your bedroom with a mirror on it that's called a vanity. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? But one leads to the other. Self-focus leads to the emptiness. Self-aggrandizing or self-exalting leads to the worthlessness of life because it is being lived outside of the will of God. So then it doesn't matter how technologically advanced man has become, or how intellectually saturated or financially secure or even materially fulfilled. Man is always and will be indeed empty and uncertain without God. Empty and uncertain without God. See, we've, we've mentioned that this time that we're living in right now is an uncertain time. It is an uncertain time for much of the world. But for every believer in Jesus Christ, it is not an uncertain thing. We have a certainty that we know and that we have from God's word and from God's promises and from Christ's promises that certain things are going to happen because of what is happening today. These are the signs of the times that Jesus warned us about, that the prophets warned us about, that the apostles warned us about. And these are the times where we can be certain that God is going to have his way. As long as we are not living for ourselves outside of the will of God. So getting back to this understanding of vanity, the very meaning of the word vanity, a thing insufficient and worthless that soon vanishes away like a vapor or a bubble, describes all of man's existence as fleeting or transitory here for a moment and then gone away. And so, life is but a vapor. Life is but a vapor. Solomon learned a lot from his father David. And it was David, when you read Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5, who said, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine age as is nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Man at his best state is altogether vanity, empty, worthless, insufficient. 
and futile in and of themselves. And then in Psalm 62, verse 9, it says, Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Wow. But then in the New Testament, in James chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? Here's the question. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Always think of your life in respect to the eternality of God or the eternal nature of God. He's eternal. And he wants us to have an eternal life after this life has come to realize that this life by itself, under the sun, outside of God's will, has a tragic end and is shortened by the very nature of our being created and being a fallen creature at that. So the Apostle Paul would have us look beyond, to look beyond this existence to a greater reality. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18, Paul says, Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Our light affliction... There are some people who would consider what we're going through today not as light affliction. For some, it's a heavy affliction. Lives have been lost. Deaths have occurred. Although when you compare many other things that are going on in the world within, a, a let's just say, a certain year, there are more deaths out, uh, out by things such as abortion and, and cancer and, and, and whatnot. So death is a real, is a reality in this life under the sun. But Paul looks at it in a different perspective, with a different perspective and with different priorities, you see. For our light affliction, he says, which is but for a moment. What we're going through on this earth, just a moment. Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Eternity is different. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so in our text here in chapter 1, Solomon first deals with the frustration of man's labor in his struggle to live. And he says in verse 3, What profit has a man of all his labor? which he taketh under the sun. As the preacher, Solomon throws down a challenge now. What do you get from everything that you do in this life? What do you get from everything that you do in this life? Some would say, absolutely nothing. Coming from a more pessimistic view, if you will, of this book. Others would say that man would get precious little from his labor. But Solomon would write something in the Proverbs. Proverbs 14, verse 23. And he says, in, la- in all labor, he says, there is profit. In all labor, there is profit. But the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury, which means poverty and destitution. It's interesting that the, the phrase talk of the lips in the Hebrew, refers to vain talking. Vain talking. Worthless talking. 
worthless speaking, empty and futile words that lead to poverty and destitution. And so apart from God, the world is poor indeed. Apart from God. I'm not talking about looking at numbers, you know, bank account numbers. Apart from God, the world is poor. We can get way ahead of ourselves in the book of Ecclesiastes and say, listen, whatever you make on this earth, you can't take it with you. Disappointment brings weariness. Success gives no permanent satisfaction. Some people get success and all they want is what? More success. More of the bright lights. More of, more of the limelight, as it were. And everything that comes with it. The more you work, the more you want, the more you get, the more you spend. Consider what God is saying To Israel in Isaiah 55, verses 2 and 3. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Do you hear the invitation here? But God is saying, incline your ear, lean to me, and come to me. Here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. I I love that phrase, even the sure mercies of David, because that reflects really the coming of the Messiah. A Messiah, in in, in the Messiah you find the sure mercies of David. God is saying, you spend so much time in your labor to buy this and to buy that, when what you need to do is come to me. Come to me, and you shall live. Because this life won't last. But life in Christ, life with the God of creation, will last forever. Consider in Habakkuk or Habakkuk uh, chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people should labor, shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity. It is not of the Lord of hosts that the people should labor in the very fire and then and weary themselves in vain things. not of the Lord of hosts, that people should do that. You see, Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, would say unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The moment that Jesus says, take up your cross or take up the cross, He's saying, you've got to die. You've got to die to yourself. And follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. <clears throat> for what is a man profited if he, gain, if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Do you see how Jesus now really completes all the thought of what we were building up to here? What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world? You can have the whole world, but lose your own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I mean, these are deep questions. That pertain not only to the time of Jesus, they pertain to us even greater today. 
the frustration that man has of just making ends meet. This is what Solomon had, had, Solomon had observed with the way people labor in this life. Going from sun up to sun down and not having anything at the end. Because it just continues to go and go and go and and no headway is made. Well, it's not going to happen. Even if you were to gain the whole world. The heart and mind of a humanist considers man more important than God. It'll all be lost the moment of their last breath. Think about that. Solomon then dealt with the futility found in nature and history. The futility that is found in nature and history. He goes on in verses 4 through 7. He says, one generation passeth away and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth. And the sun goeth down and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually. And the wind returneth again according to his circuits. We watch the news and the weather all year long, don't we? And we go from season to season. And every season, when it changes, we could almost... You know, if we've looked at them long enough, see the, the, the wind patterns, you know, <laughs> always coming from the west, going to east and whatnot. And sometimes winds coming from the east collide with the winds coming from the west and, and cause all kinds of havoc. But, but there are circuits, there are circuits going on. This is science that is being made very clear in the time of Solomon. Verse 7, all the rivers run into the sea. Yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. He speaks about it more as you read on in chapter 55 of of Isaiah. Because we read that a little earlier. But another proof of vanity and fleeting is found in the contrast between the changeableness of man and the permanency of the earth. Now, when, when Solomon says, you know, the earth will be, uh, as, as he mentions there, abideth forever. And of course, we know that the earth itself was, will be destroyed by fire at, at, a, at a certain time. But Solomon uses that term to describe the fact that the earth will continue on even while man is constantly, constantly changing. So, it is the changeableness of man and the permanency of the earth, the place where man lives. The contrast is what he's getting at. Man and his labor are swept away as if they had never been. Was it not Shakespeare who said that the world is a stage, people appearing and vanishing before our eyes? One generation passes away to make room for another. Fathers go, in other words, and children come, but none stay. The house abides, yet the tenants keep changing. None can remain to enjoy it. So, here's the thing. Eternity and unchangeableness are then the necessary grounds for true happiness. Not life on this earth. Eternity and unchangeableness are the necessary grounds for a fulfilled life. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 10 and 11 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be Burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? It it is in that aspect of godliness 
and a following after Christ. Taking up our own cross, dying to self, and letting Christ live in us. Is that eternal foundation and the unchangeableness of our lives in the spirit of God not in the ways of man as we've lived before before we come before we came to know Jesus Christ verses 5 through 7 of our text here reveal the wisdom of Solomon in relation to his scientific observations of nature. Everything he saw presented the same picture. Constant movement combined with constant sameness leads to weariness in going through the motions of existence. I mentioned the, the seasons earlier. And you know, and, and it's, it's, it's how, we, how we are when we go from one season to the next. We live in, a, you know, in El Paso being a very warm, warm place in the summer, and we all do it. You know, when summer starts coming, we say, oh, man, it's going to get hot now. Okay, and it gets really hot. Then we're saying, oh, man, this, this heat is unbearable. I can't, I, can't wait till, I can't wait till it gets, you know, till fall and then eventually winter. Oh, man, we can't wait. So it gets nice and cool again. And then it comes, and we, we like it for a little while. I think that's what fall is all about. You know, fall and spring are those, those little transitional or transitory type things where we can go through it, you know, and then we, we get to a point where we, we get to the, the, you know, the winter. Then when winter comes, we really like it. Oh, maybe it'll snow this year, right? Yeah, then we're complaining about how cold it is, and we can't wait till it heats up again. That's futility. So what Solomon is asking is, will the true meaning of life be found in nature? I think we know the answer. So what will help us break this seemingly endless cycle? Well, I'd like for you to turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations is a five-chapter book uh, that follows the, the, the book of Jeremiah. Written by the prophet Jeremiah, the Lamentations of Jeremiah, as it, as it is called. And I want you to go right to the middle of that book in chapter 3 and listen to the words here of Jeremiah in verse 22. Lamentations has to do with weeping, weeping over the judgments that have fallen upon Judah and Israel. But right smack in the middle of this lamentation are these words. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is my portion. Listen to that again. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. Our hope is in the Lord who is our portion. He is our everything when you think about that statement. He is our sustenance. He is our strength. He is our song. He is everything that we need for life and godliness. He goes on and says, the Lord is good unto them that wait for him. Well, that sounds like something that should, uh, you know, really stir our heart to say, well, maybe, maybe. I should turn away from mindless things. Especially those that I aim toward myself to make myself better, to make myself more blessed and more pleased in life. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him. To the soul that seeketh him. Are you making a list of the things that we may not have been doing up to this point? Waiting for the Lord. Seeking the Lord. Notice in verse 26 it says, It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait. 
for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now, some people would look at the yoke and say, well, well the yoke is a, that's, that's kind of a, a intensive labor kind of thing, you know, where, you, where, where, where you, you're yoked, you know, with, by this big piece of wood to a, a larger animal and, and uh, you, you're, led or, you're, you're, you're led around, you're, you're being taught by the, the older and bigger animal. Uh, that, that requires work, doesn't it? Yeah, but interestingly enough, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Why? Because it relates strongly to what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. When he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I shall give you rest. Come, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, our greatest work, according to the scriptures, according to the gospel, according specifically to certain things that Jesus said in the gospel of John, our greatest work is to believe in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is to believe. That is our work. We are to be yoked to Jesus. He's the one who leads us and guides us and teaches us and and strengthens us and matures us through those times of trial and struggle, through those times of, of, of great affliction. Times like today. And if that was all about nature, what about the futility of history? Solomon deals with that in verses 8 through 11 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He says, all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. No new thing. I know that we are so attuned to a lot of advertising, you know, that says new and improved. This is new. That's new. This is better than new. But you see, that's the futility of history. There's nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. Is there, Solomon goes on and says, is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new? It has been already of old time, which was before us. That's history, you see. There's no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Much of what Solomon is saying here is that history teaches us that men and women are struggling to find meaning in their experiences, but all in vain. As as a great historian philosopher once said, History teaches us that we learn nothing from history. And I think that Solomon actually came up with that in this very statement we're reading here. Nothing is new. Will true meaning be found in history? Well, go to Solomon, uh, I'm sorry, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, because there Solomon says this. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 15, he says, That which has been is now. And that which is to be hath already been. And God requireth that which is past. What that means in a nutshell is we're the ones frustrated in this time continuum. There's nothing new under the sun, but at the same time, the Lord is keeping track of everything. God is requiring that which is past. Everything we've done, God requires it. Then next, Solomon deals with the frustration of wisdom. 
The last few verses, verses 12 through 18. Solomon says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. In effect, under the sun. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom, is much grief. And he that increases knowledge increaseth sorrow. Again, under heaven, under the sun. So, in this passage, Solomon has put on his philosopher hat. And he tells how he went about searching for for the answer to the problem that vexed and puzzled him. As the king of Israel, he had all the resources necessary for experimenting with different solutions to see what made life worth living. In effect, that's what he was saying in this passage. Everything from physical, fleshly pleasures and accomplishing great and expensive works Uh, and, and accumulating great possessions and then coming to the conclusion that all of it, all of it was only vanity and grasping for the wind, as he said in verse 14. Well, the Lord has given man something that he has not given the rest of creation. He's given man the constant urge to make sense of life and give it meaning. But we're fallen creatures. We're fallen creatures who need the life and enlightenment that can only come from God in and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John writes in verses 4 and 5, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. But in Jesus Christ, the Logos, was life. The giver of life came to this earth. Came to this earth and walked amongst those who were under the heavens and under the sun walking in their futility and in their frustrations over labor and finances and making ends meet and considering it all folly. And as he mentions in this passage we just read, even madness. We sometimes look at the world today and we say, man, this is a crazy world. In fact, I've said it many times, it's insane. Everything that's going on in this world today. I used it a lot when we were talking about the deep state, the deeper state, and the deepest state. And there's still more yet to come. But Jesus came. And a light shined into darkness. The darkness did not understand it, nor did it seek its best to receive it. 
For us today, it is, impar- it is imperative that we see things no longer through the lens of the human perspective, through the lens of the human point of view. We must begin to see things, if we haven't already. We must begin to see things through the eyes of faith, the eyes of God. They're not our eyes, but we can see through his perspective, through his spirit, in his word. Paul in Romans 8, verses 26 to 28 said, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Before we go to verse 28, I just want to mention that this is important for us to understand that we have an intercessor today. And his name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. Jesus is our intercessor. Praying for us before the Father. Interceding on our behalf. that we might be understanding of what the will of the Father is. Because again, remember that living under the Son is living in futility because man is not living according to the will of God. So then Paul says, and we know, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You see, to those who have the perspective of God's will through his spirit and through his word, to know where we are, to know where we're going, to know what we're doing, to know what we are to do until the coming of Jesus. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. We don't have to be uncertain about the uncertainty of the coronavirus epidemic or pandemic. Yes, there are certain uncertainties that we hear about every day as to whether we're going to be back to normal or, or not for weeks or months. What is certain is that Jesus Christ is coming again. What is certain is that his people are to keep looking up and lifting up our heads in victory because our redemption draweth nigh. And because God is working all things for good to them that love God. You see, there is frustration when our thinking, when our wisdom and our knowledge are bound to the things of this earth. Again, under the sun. And it's time then. It's time then to let old things pass away. And all things will become new. Because in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. See, the newness of life is not found in, a, in an advertisement or in a jingle. 
new and improved. No. Everything's been the same from the very beginning until Jesus came. Until Jesus changed everything on the cross. Until Jesus came and changed everything by rising from the dead and conquering sin and death and hell and the devil. All things are changed. Those who come to Christ are now new creatures in Christ. Old things are passed away. Old things are passed away. You know, there's a debate today about old earth and new earth. We, we don't have to debate that tonight, but, you know, the, the point of the matter is, even if the old earth is really a young earth, it's still old. Because it's earth, and it's going to pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away as we know it. But the word of God will endure forever. The heaven that God has created for us will endure forever. The new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will endure for us forever. Those things would never change. But what changed? We did. We changed. Oh, we're still in these old bodies that are getting older every day. But who we are in Christ will never change. We're brand spanking new. And we will always be new. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ for 40, 50, 60 years, or 40, 50, or 60 days, maybe even right now, 40 or 50 or 60 minutes, you're a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Paul, Paul's use of that word behold, take hold of this with every sense that you have, both physically and spiritually. Behold, all things are become new. So, the question, what profit has a man of all his labor which he, which he taketh under the sun? Not much under the sun. But in Christ, we have treasures laid up for us, an inheritance laid up for us in eternity, where nothing of this earth, nothing of this wicked earth could ever destroy or steal. Come to Jesus if you haven't already. Come back to Jesus if you strayed away with your human perspective. Come back to see things from God's perspective. How much he loves you, cares for you, and provides for you. And let his life live in you.